Hello, Woodworms. I'm Ray Lefterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. There are many questions that today's book answers. The majority are good woodworking questions, but the one I find myself returning to time and time again is how long can something survive in a well? In a way, it's the kind of question that you expect from a Chris Swartz book. Another, and this one seems unlikely to be answered to my satisfaction, is what is down the pit in that brewery in Covington? Few other authors have the ability to transmit curiosity in the way that Chris does. I think that, in a way, it's his defining hallmark, insatiable curiosity and the ability to write compellingly about where these questions take him. If you're at a bit of a loss about what I'm talking to, jump to the end and read Experto Credo, the last chapter of Ingenious Mechanics by Chris Schwarz, which is today's book. I considered skipping this book because I guess in many ways, for many readers, the low workbench, often referred to as a Roman workbench, is not an obvious choice as a subject for the home shop, let alone a suitable subject for a book. If this describes you, I understand your scepticism. Last July, I picked up this book a few times in Highland Woodworking Atlanta, picked it up, put it down, picked it up, added it to the purchase list, crossed it off, and admonished myself that I was already spending a fortune on RU rasps. And yet, in the end, over the course of a few days, I came back to the book and I bought it anyway. I've never regretted it. It's probably one of my favourites. And while in terms of pure utility I would consider it a secondary read to workbenches by the same author, in terms of writing, it really shows how Chris has grown and grown as an author. But before the review, let's do a bit of housekeeping, as it were. I haven't mentioned my patrons for a while, and I'd really like to thank Henry, Brett from Crow Hollow, and Camille for their continued support. I know that in these times with furloughs, layoffs, and salary reductions, it's a time where everyone needs to turn over their pennies a few times before spending them and I appreciate your support. At the same time, if you're enjoying the show, one of the best ways you can support me is to refer it to a friend who you would think would enjoy it. I was blown away over this past weekend. Joshua Klein and the good folk at Mortis and Tenon showcased my review in a blog, as did Cora Ull from Lost Art Press. These two blog posts saw the show rocket, and for the first time, I cracked the top 100 in podcasting in the leisure charts. In fact, I nearly caught wood talk for a moment in time. It was really great. Thank you all for making it happen. Another first, this week saw an author reach out to me for the first time based on one of my previous reviews. You might remember Scott Wynn from Getting Started with Hand Plans. Scott, thanks a million for making contact. It was great to read your mail and suggestions. And to listeners Rick, Giuseppe and Andre, thanks for taking the time to write. I've really enjoyed the interactions. And Andre, I'm going to hold you to your promise to send me pictures of the completed dovetail box. I know that you look at it critically. And I guess we all do when looking at our own work, but I think your work was way better than the good grade you gave yourself. I'll point out here that my first attempt at dovetails exploded the joint completely. Anything with a few insignificant gaps is great in my book. And one last thing, if you're on Instagram, take a look at Barbie Woodshop, or Barbie of All Trades. It's an amazing series, and it makes me laugh often, but there are some real gems of wisdom buried amongst the jokes. Barbie grapples with many of the issues I face in my shop, and it's often possible to learn from her. Anyway, back to the book. So Ingenious Mechanics is subtitled Early Workbenches and Workholding, and it's an investigative dive into historical methods 
it goes way further back than the typical treatment of the subject, which typically only focuses around the 18th and 19th century. If you consider that some of the joints we use today were first used by Egyptians thousands of years ago, and the Romans had a metal sold plane in the first couple of centuries AD, it makes sense to review the material and see what we can learn from our predecessors. After all, it's safe to say that from the earliest times, wood was a material that everyone worked in every culture. A good place to start this book is in Italy. Courtesy of the volcano Pompeii, we have the oldest preserved fresco of a workbench, and that's from 79 AD. In another 59 years, that's exactly 2,000 years ago. The mind boggles. But I think what is even more impressive is the Salzburg bench. Remember that question about the well? Well, apparently if you throw a wooden workbench down a well, it can last for at least 1,833 years. This workbench was from a Roman fort, was tossed down the well when the fort was overrun, with a view that the occupants would recover it later, and here it remained until its discovery over 1800 years later. If you ever want to feel a connection to the past, this is a good start. In fact, knowing that a shop project can last over 18 centuries makes me feel a bit better about how long it takes me to complete some of them. Quite a lot of the beginning of the book is about the history and journey of Chris's discoveries. There are three main workbenches in the book. The final one of the trio is the Loffel Hulse workbench, which is documented in illustrations from 1505, making it possibly the first, air quotes, modern workbench. Based on what I've said, you might conclude that the book is a historical treaty, and while interesting, there's no practical value in the book. So at this point, I'll be quick to add that the book covers quite a lot about how to construct these benches. Wood type, sizes for bench, work holding, some practical considerations, critiques of modern workbenches. So if this was your only book, you'd have some of the material you needed to construct the bench. In fact, I think you have all the material you need to construct the bench. But you might struggle a bit. It's not a set of measured plans and diagrams. Rather, it's a journey and an exploration with enough support that you could get to the end result on your own. I think the obvious comparison is to contrast it with workbenches, from theory and design to construction and use. This book is a little bit lacking in terms of the plan. It's certainly not as comprehensive in terms of a woodworking article in a popular woodworking magazine. But I would say that there's more than enough to get you by, and it's got a different flavour. So don't take this as a criticism of the content, it's really just a reflection on the different type of form. Construction plans aside, what it does have, the extra history, the storytelling, the explanation, those make it different from workbenches, and they make it magnificent. The first section includes over 30 pages of beautiful full-colour photos and text that trace the origins of the workbench from Herculaneum fresco all the way through to a study of medieval paintings to more recent times. I guess in many ways we're lucky that Jesus was a carpenter, and as a result many religious paintings have sought to display him in this context. Invariably these paintings suffer from pretty extreme bias from the artist involved. Just like many paintings depict Jesus in a very different skin tone and facial features from a Jewish citizen circa 1 AD, so too many medieval painters substituted their contemporary work holding and woodworking tools versus historical tools. And this creates a rich, somewhat confusing, record that is an eclectic mix, I guess, of contemporary and ancient mixed all together in a bundle. I guess this is interesting to woodworkers in a specific way. While you may appreciate a picture of Jesus with a frame saw on the wall, seeing him use a 14th century brace is a bit jarring to me. 
but would probably be very acceptable to many viewers. It just looks like an old woodworking tool, I guess. I also enjoyed the fact that this book is a bit more balanced in terms of an east-west perspective. I enjoyed seeing some of the depictions of early Chinese work holding, particularly with reference to the palm, which is a work holding device I am determined to add to my workbench at some point. After traversing some more artworks, we move through the usual suspects like Rubeau and through to Steele's more modern diagram, and end the chapter with a few black and white photographs, courtesy of woodworking in Estonia. Chapter 4, Workbenches, When, Where and Why, is a quick chapter that plots some of the archaeological finds, differentiating between local workbenches and others, and gives some insight into possible reasons for their distribution, before we off to Chapter 5 and a discussion of early workholding devices. This is a meaty chapter, and the first one that starts to include diagrams and more detailed work instructions. Let's start by saying that I'm a fan of iceless workholding. Not exclusively. I have a Moxon-type twin screw on my bench, but I like crochets and I like planing stops. If you've got any interest in the topic, there are 35 wonderful pages with great photos and illustrations that will take you through the options. The planing stop is a good place to start. On my bench I've added a height-adjustable version, and I've always been nervous about the metal versions. I guess that I've got an overreactive imagination, because whenever I contemplate steel options, I have a vision of my favourite plane hitting it with a devastating crunch. Chris says that in 12 years of using a metal planing stop he's never hit one. I'm going to try and keep my record intact, by not adding one. But if you're interested, there's a wonderful array of shapes, sizes and designs in this section that will undoubtedly serve as inspiration for anything from a custom blacksmith commission to a cobbled together home version. If your bench doesn't have a central planing beam, the next appliance, the doe's foot, will come in handy. The function of the device, some nice pictures, and some practical tips are included here. Chris is clearly no theoretician. He'll discuss a practical problem and give you a no-nonsense solution, or a couple of options. I think this is the point in the book where history starts to blend into practicality. And you might be asking yourself why would you want to build a low bench? I'll be honest, they always looked a bit odd to me. But when I started chopping some large 2-inch deep mortises into 3-4 to four inch stock, I quickly realised that what is comfortable at my Nicholson bench, on thinner stock, is not necessarily ideal for bigger work. I've built a saw bench, so I thought I'd give it a try, and I'd urge you to do the same sometime, well, the next time you're chopping a big mortise. Put your work on top of the saw bench, sit on it, and try chopping a mortise. I think that, like me, this is the point when the light bulb will turn on in your head. If you consider that historically the high and the low bench has coexisted, you'll realise that one form is not an improvement of the other. For certain tasks, including planing and mortising, sitting on top of your work is surprisingly comfortable and furthermore gives you different sight angles of the work. I'd go as far as saying that mortises in particular may be far easier to do with perfectly straight walls on a low bench versus a high bench. The palm is a V-notched appliance favoured in China and it's up next in the book, and the section discusses a few different variants, as well as giving you instructions on how to make one. In 1425, Karl Schreiner went to his workshop and became the subject matter of a painting. As a result, we know that one alternate to the doe's foot was in use as early as the 15th century. By simply adding pegs to the workbench top in a specific pattern, you create all the work holding you'll need for traversing boards with the plane. 
The diagram of the spacing is eerily familiar. In many ways this looks like a direct inspiration for Jonathan Fisher's bench, some 300 years later. Personally I like using pegs in this manner a lot. I think that they're simple, they take a very little storage space, and because they're made from simple offcuts of wood, you can make them in a range of heights to work with all your commonly used thicknesses. I keep promising myself that I'm going to turn some fancy ones on the lathe, but ever the procrastinator I'm using simple dowel cutoffs for now. Chris recommends making them firm enough that they fit by tap tapping them up and down with mallet strikes, but I've never had much luck with that method. So if you're not precious about how they look, consider that they're easy to throw together with a simple countersunk screw to join a th slightly thicker top section, or use a bullet catch on the body of the peg to provide some positive resistance. I've used pegs on a high workbench, but Chris's investigations take him into some fascinating territory about how staggered pegs could be used as a makeshift vice. Don't forget to use your body when you work in conjunction with these pegs. There's a good photo of Andy Brownell using his legs to immobilize a piece that is worth considering. You can use double pegs, staggered pegs of a variety of heights, and wedges, or even a simple rope with foot loops to work in conjunction with your pegs. I like that in this part of the book, Chris takes you through some of the practical elements of working on different board orientations for operations from planing to sawing. There's even a bit about how to cut joinery in this orientation. So if you plan on building this as your only workbench, you'll have a view on how to go about doing a dovetail. Crochets and wedge notches are next, and I think it's amazing how such simple fixtures can multiply your work holding options. I love my crochet, but I find the wedge notch to be incredibly intriguing. It's the kind of thing that once you've seen it, you just itch to, to give it a try. To wrap up this section, there's a few pages about making your own wood screws. Don't get me started about this part of the book, I love wood screws. Suffice it to say that Chris's patterns and designs for screws seem to turn up all over the internet and Instagram, and I'd suggest that this is a good testament to his role in popularising them. There's also 11 pages about how a workbench can be turned into a shaving horse, so if you're an aspirant chairmaker, this is a really nice section to serve as a historical record. Inspiration, and because of the diagrams and instructions, also a very practical guide that a woodworker with a modicum of skill will be able to turn into a working design. At this point we've covered about two-thirds of the book and we get into the meat of building the Herculaneum workbench. If you've read the Anarchist tool chest or any one of Chris's other books, the pattern of this chapter is familiar. Taken up a notch, I suggest, with beautiful photography. There's the normal insightful commentary, not theory, but hard-won practical knowledge about how to accomplish operations on the bench. Chris is no romantic. The bench is put through its paces for work. There are detailed instructions from choosing your slab to the order of operations for building it, supplemented by diagrams and photos. If you want to know how to do some compound joinery, Chris takes you through it. Want to know how to do the pegs? It's in there as well. The correct position for the dog holes, the sidebar on four legs or eight, you name it, it's there. Again, at this point I'd suggest for a complete beginner, that Workbenches provides a more step-by-step -step process and a lot more diagrams. If you were to put the two down next to each other and compare the thud factor, then Workbenches is the winner. But frankly, a low workbench is a lot easier to make. If you're curious about this form and would like to build one, I believe that there's all you'll need in the book. Workbenches, the obvious comparison, has more diagrams and plans, but this workbench is by its nature simpler, and I suggest you'd find all you need to build here. 
The Solberg workbench is up next. I've been to Frankfurt twice before. Frankly, I wish I'd saved the trip until after I'd read this book. There are some really evocative pictures in the book about the Roman fort reconstruction, and it looks like it would be an incredible place to visit. I'll make a note for it for the next time I'm in Germany. A two millennia old bench is something I would love to see. In case you're wondering how this could have survived, I did a bit of digging. You might think that water is a catalyst in terms of rotting, and while this is true, wood needs two things to rot, water and oxygen. It's a fact exploited by floating logs down in the river and storing them in water yards. Submerged in water, wood is pretty safe. It's that combination of oxygen and moisture that's deadly. Anyway, segue aside, let's return to the chapter. Again, we have instructions for sight lines and rake and splay angles through to help with making the mortises. There's a suggested work order and plans and pictures that will give you a good steer. Even if you're not making a copy of the workbench, there's a lot to learn here. Well, I certainly did, because in a way it's a journey into chairmaking terminology and techniques, admittedly in the simple form of a stake bench. The chapter feels short when you look at the page count. It's just 10 pages long. And yet again, upon reflection, I cannot find anything missing. In a way, I guess this is what had me putting the book in and out of the shopping cart. The hardbound book is $39 for a book, and it's 150 pages long, so the cost per page is quite high. But I guess, by the same token, the cost per page for a telephone directory is quite low, and I'm not sure I'd enjoy reading that cover to cover. What stands out for me is that the book is a quality production from cover to cover. The reproductions of pictures are beautiful, the diagrams are clear, the photography is illustrative, and there's a beautiful consistent style to the writing. If you're a fan of The Hobbit, I'm reminded of the quote, A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he meant to. Let's consider Chris Wars to be the woodworking wizard in this case. The book is neither too long, nor too short. There is neither too much text, nor too little. There are neither too few, nor too many pictures. It is precisely the book it should be. So in conclusion, Ingenious Mechanics is 148 pages long and is written by Chris Schwarz. You can find the book at lostartpress.com and as at May 2020, it costs $39. I'm giving the book a 7 out of 10 in the category Workbenches and I'm giving the book a 7.5 out of 10 in the category Historical. Readers familiar with the book might feel that this is a bit harsh, but I believe that for comparative purposes, a historically minded reader would be better with a choice such as hand employed or right, or country furniture. Likewise, I believe that workbenches, from theory and design to construction and use, is the gold standard for workbench books. However, if you like history and are intrigued by low workbenches, there is no better book I am aware of that covers these topics so well together. So that's it for now, Woodworms, and remember, Go chop a mortise on a saw bench to see what it feels like, and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest, or one you're considering buying that you'd like me to review in a future episode, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes.